0: It means to stand amazed or to pay attention, uh, to stand in awe with reverence, with respect. It's to to take time and to make sure that you ponder and you think about what is about to be mentioned, what's about to be said. Parents, uh, we don't use this word very much in our culture, but I encourage you this week to use it. Behold, and let your kids just stand and ponder in amazement and then say, go clean your room. I think it's a word that in a sense just says, hey, pause, reflect, consider what's next. A word that we don't use very often, but it's found a thousand times in our Bibles. Behold. I'll show you just a handful of times where you would see it that the prophets of old used it. Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, as he talks about the coming of Christ. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign and behold, pause, pause, Consider, in amazement, take in the words. A virgin will be with child and bear son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Amen. Jeremiah the prophet uh, says this. Behold, pause, consider, in amazement, stand in awe of these words. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That covenant fulfilled and uh, you see that uh, John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loves, writes about a guy named John the Baptist. in John chapter one verse 29, and later again, a handful of verses later, um, he, he utters the words, "Behold." And in 29, he says, "The next day Jesus uh, saw him, or uh, the next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." When John the Baptist utters these words about Jesus, the Messiah, I can almost see him doing that in person, almost in seeing this guy dressed in camel's uh, skin, clothing, the guy who's eaten uh, locusts and grasshoppers the days of his life, but out in the wilderness, he finally, in a sense, prepares the way of Jesus' ministry. I can see John the Baptist almost saying, Behold, and encouraging everyone around him to stop, to ponder, to consider in amazement, and then saying, This is is the Lamb of God. This is him. This is Jesus the Christ, the one of of Nazareth. The Nazarene I've been telling you about, this is him. And I can almost see as John the Baptist repairs the way of the Lord, as it was prophesied that even he would do, I can see him saying, stand in amazement. Take time, ponder, consider. I don't know about you, but we live in a culture right now where we struggle to, to slow down, to ponder, to stand amazed by anything. Uh, oftentimes the things we're most amazed by are the videos that we see on YouTube. Um, here recently, I uh, even uh, think about um, some of the other things that might happen around us. We stand amazed at God's creation oftentimes, the big buck that was shot, right? You see all these different things that draw all the, the attention, that garner all the, the accolades, all the promotions of things that happen around us. And, and it's crazy what we'll stand in awe of. Right now, maybe you stand in awe of Christmas. Maybe it's your Amazon list or the parties that you're going to go to. Maybe right now, the very thing that's keeping you from being amazed at God is the very things that you've created yourself. I think we struggle with that in our culture, right? Like just to, to stand in awe and be amazed at the promise of God, his presence in our lives, the power that we are to behold, the peace that he offers. And the thing is, is that as we stand in all of him over the next handful of weeks together, we're going to just talk about his presence and about his power and about the, 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 the peace that he desires to offer us, but the reality is we have to slow down, we have to ponder, we have to consider, and we have to be amazed by it and all of the things around us. And friends, I don't know about you, but we struggle. And so in order to help you kind of get prepared, I want to just kind of give you an assessment test, okay? In order for us to kind of get ready for the holiday season, in order for us to behold the presence of God in our lives, we got to do an assessment, okay? And so here's what's going to look. I'm going to put a little video. It's nothing hard. It's nothing confusing, okay? You just need to be able to count. So anybody in here, uh, you can count, okay? Go ahead. Okay, so there's a lot of you that you're not raising your hands, and you're, quite frankly, you're offending me, and here's why. (laughs) Because I'm like, okay, do you not understand the question, or you just don't care about the guy on stage asking you to to do an assessment? Okay, so there we go. Thank you, baby girl. She's got her hand raised. She's like, I'm ready. Praise the Lord. She needs a a T. Okay, so how many of you can count? Go ahead and raise your hands, okay? Thank you. Good deal. Um, Edgewood, I hope you guys can count, too. Here's what your goal is, is simply count, okay? So listen to the video, and then... Pay attention to the assessment because I'm going to quiz you on it here in just a second. So here we go. Quick assessment. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Okay, everybody uh, real quickly turn to your neighbor real quick and tell them how many you got. Okay, so how many of you got 12? Any 12s in the room? Okay, great. Any 14s in the room? Okay, Uh, any 13s in the room? Okay, a lot of 13s. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. So if you got 13, go ahead and just pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I I did pretty good. But the question is, is is did you pass the awareness test? So did anybody see the moonwalking bear? Okay, here we go. Here, y'all check this out right here. The answer is 13, but did you see the moon walking Um. bear? you focus on something so intently, you'll kind of miss the other things around you, right? Um, That, I think, is the challenge that we have to stand and be amazed, is that oftentimes the thing that keeps us from beholding the glory of God and his presence in our life is the things that draw and garner all the attention around us. And one of the challenges that we have as Americans is not only the frantic and the challenging pace that we set for ourselves, but really the desire to keep up with the traditions of old and the new traditions that we and our friends are creating every day. The challenge is is that we are to behold the presence of God. And as we do that, it's to stand amazed. And we need to oftentimes do an assessment of our own lives and just ask ourselves the question, what is it that's getting my attention? What is it that's getting my time, my treasure? What is it that in some ways I'm spending and even using the, the talent that God's given me on? What is it? Um, that I'm beholding. And friends, as we think through that, uh, I pray that, that you'll be reminded of what Christmas is really all about. Now, I'm going to catch you up on a story that you've read probably many times in your life, and I want you to see the response that we uh, will will garner from a a young lady named Mary. And you see this account in Luke chapter one, uh, this Luke, Luke, uh, a physician and a a historian of great resilience, but also uh, inordinate perfection as he writes. He gives an account to a guy named Theophilus, and he says, hey, here's the things that have come to pass. And he writes those out for us, and he tells us about an experience that happened in this little uh, region north of Jerusalem, about 70 miles in Nazareth. And and this is what it says in uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 through 38. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, meaning the angel Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored, when the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And I don't know about you, but I would have been greatly troubled too. Um, It's not every day that we have angel encounters, right? I mean, when's the last time that you saw an angel standing before you saying, Hey, don't be afraid, for you have garnered the attention and the favor of God? Hadn't happened, right? Uh, and I don't know about you, but if it did, you're probably going to do what every other time that happens in the scripture, and that is going—you're going to fall on your face, like every other account. You see accounts of Daniel and John, and they all drop to their knees and fall in their face. And and in many ways, you, you see them uh, begin in awe and reverence, and even sometimes it seems like worship these angelic beings. At one point, you even see in the scripture the angel goes, "Hey, d- listen, don't don't bow down before me. Like you're worshiping the wrong thing." But this angelic being has an enormous presence and power and it's a message from God and tells this young lady, hey, listen, don't be afraid. Don't don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged for the Lord our God has a message for you. And he shows up in the most obscure place, this little town in, in Nazareth. I already mentioned it was north of Jerusalem, about 70 miles. It was just uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, just east of the Mediterranean. It's in an obscure little place in the mountains, uh, a community far less than the communities that we live in. And, and here it is, God comes in anonymity to this, this woman and this man, Mary and Joseph. They don't have a whole lot to write home about. As a Matter of fact, it's the idea of First Corinthians chapter one. You would see that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and the wise things to shame, uh, or the foolish things to shame the wise. That's exactly what his approach was. He goes to this this woman who, um, in many ways, uh, you wouldn't think that God would show up to, and he he goes, "Hey, listen, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you." And uh, as as he mentions this. Um, the angel tells her, hey, don't be afraid because you've found favor with God. And then look what he says in verse 31. He says, and behold, and behold. He goes, hey, Mary, pay attention. Like The Lord Lord has a message for you, and and, and it's important. So take time, stand in awe with reverence and amazement. Ponder and consider these words. You are going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary says, as she's beholding all of these words, as she's pondering in amazement, she's got a really good question, and she says, "Well, how is this going to be, since I'm a virgin?" The question that she goes is, okay, I understand what you just said. I'm even pondering and considering that. But the question is, is, how does something that's inconceivable become conceivable? Something that's so impossible, how does that become possible? Like, this isn't even making sense in some ways. I get it. And then probably in her mind, she's reminded of the prophet. She's reminded of, in Isaiah seven fourteen. And behold, because I'm going to send to you a son born of a virgin, and you're going to call him Emmanuel. So probably she's she's used to knowing that the Messiah is gonna come. That's probably something that's trickled all throughout the Jewish culture. But the question is, is have you ever stopped and, and thought that maybe it was you that God wanted to use? Have you ever thought that like, hey, it was this Mary, that the one who's heard all the stories, has heard the prophets' accounts, but never stopped to behold this one fact that maybe I'm the person that God wants to use. See, what's crazy is is. You oftentimes think that God's going to use people, but you don't ever think that he's going to use you in a great and powerful ways. And I think that's Mary. How is that going to happen? I mean, how is it even possible? And the angel answers her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. He goes, it's going to happen, not of a natural way, but of a supernatural way. And that supernatural way is the Holy Spirit is going to conceive in you a son. And so though you've had no physical uh, relationship with Joseph, there's not, never been a consummation of your betrothal period, you're going to have a son, and it's going to be a divine purpose issued by the Holy Spirit in your womb. But look what happens next. The angel goes on and says, and behold... Ponder, not just what's happening in your womb, but ponder, consider what's happening in your relative Elizabeth. In her old age, she's also conceived a son. And in this, the sixth hour with her who's called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the angel says, hey, listen, behold, because I'm doing a new thing in you. The new covenant that the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about, in Jeremiah 31, 31, I'm going to do in you. And it's going to happen through a the supernatural um, provision of God through the Holy Spirit. But while you behold that, you also need to know that there's something born of natural flesh that's also impossible, and that is the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth have been answered. And though she's been barren for years and she's of old age, I'm going to bring about a son in her too. And that son is a guy named John the Baptist. And so he, the angel Gabriel goes, hey, you've got a lot to consider, a lot to stand amazed by, a lot to behold. Behold what God's doing in you, and behold how God is prepping the Messiah and what he's doing through your cousin Elizabeth. Behold. And then look what happens. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing as the story comes to a close. The angel says, what, what's impossible with you is not impossible with God, because there's nothing impossible with God. And then Mary saw, said, look what her response was. Behold. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I don't think I even caught this until I was reading it earlier this morning. And I was kind of going over it. And I'm like, oh, snap. She just used the same word right back to the angel. Like the angel's like, hey, behold. Probably like, hey, pause, consider. Shining a bright light. This, this little peasant woman. And he's going, hey, catch what God's doing in you. Behold, hey, catch what God's doing in your cousin. And she's like, "Behold! <laughs> pay attention, consider, stand amazed. Because I'm a servant of the Lord, and let it be according to your word." And then the angel Gabriel departs from her. The reality is is she in sense goes, "Hey, behold, Pay attention, stand in awe, because I am the servant of God. And what God has spoken will become true, and let it be according to His word. And when He says let it be according to, when she says let it be according to your word, what's interesting is she's not talking about the angel. The angel Gabriel is merely a messenger. He is not to be worshipped or esteemed or valued in the way that God is. And Gabriel knows that. And so when she replies that, she is not, I don't believe, saying, hey, let it be according to your word. I think what she is saying is let it be according to the word of God, the one who encouraged you to deliver this message. Let it be as you have said it would be as God declared it. What is impossible for men is not impossible for God. And so here I am. I'm your servant. Behold, take notice, stand in awe, because I'm going to let God do in me a new thing what an incredible blessing. But here's, as I was thinking about and pondering that this week, I just thought about what is it that keeps me from being a servant of the Lord? Like, what is it that keeps you from being God's servant? What is it that keeps you from having a similar response? The response of Isaiah that says, here I am, Lord, send me. What is it that keeps you from saying, here I am, Lord, send me? I mean, is it fear? Is it just busyness? I mean, is it just a lack of of attention and standing all at the things that God wants to do around you? I mean, I think for a lot of us in here, we have dreams and aspirations and hopes. I think about even how we raise our kids and even the things that we're teaching them. It was interesting because I had a conversation just a few moments ago with a with a young family and after the message, it was like, hey, I'm feeling really convicted. I'm convicting primarily around our Christmas. And I'm like, oh, well, Share that with me a little bit. Let's talk through that. And they're like, we're just struggling because here it is. Like we, we're, we're, we're buying lots of stuff. And, and if not careful, we'll present it in a way that is, is, can be a challenge, at least at, to our kids. And, and I'll go, absolutely. And I'm like, and you have to start talking about that even now, about how you present it and what it is that you're going to spend your time on. Because I said, here's the deal. The culture, if we're not careful, will suck us in. And as it sucks us in, listen, we will not behold or treasure the things of God. And here's what's crazy they asked their child what Christmas was about and they were super shocked at the response it almost floored them because the response was well it's the time that we give gifts and it's the time that we receive gifts it's the time that we have Santa and fun and Christmas and why were they floored by that is because that's not what they say with their mouth can I just tell you something it does no good to say something with our mouth and do something completely different in our lives See, if we're going to behold and we're going to treasure the things of God, it's got to go beyond lip service to lives that really are radically changed. And I think that's the challenge. It would have been one thing if Mary would have said, oh, behold, I'm going to be your servant. She gave lip service, but what if her life and her will and her way never followed what she said? Friends, that is the challenge in the American culture in our church. We make commitments we never intend to fully keep. We say we'll do things and we don't do them. Our yes is not yes and our no is not no. We don't fulfill our obligations and specifically to the God of heaven and earth who says stand amazed and behold my presence in your life. The problem is is that Christmas is about God's presence not about the presence you'll give or receive. And the challenge is we've made it about the wrong thing. So what keeps you from saying here I am Lord? Send me, use me according to your will and your way. What is it that keeps you from being God's servant? And I'll tell you, here's the deal, is that you cannot behold God and be dismissive of his word. What does that mean? The angel says, here's the word of the Lord. The angel says, hey, this is what's going to come to pass. And Mary's response said, let it be according to your word. What Mary knew is, is I can't do something that's contradictory to what you're telling me I should do in the Word. Which is the challenge of most of us, right? Like we, 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 we say, I'm going to behold God, but our lives don't reflect what God is telling us to do as a precedence in His Word. So what I'm saying is you cannot claim to behold God, stand amazed of Him, and not do according to His Word. And what's awesome is, is that we no longer have to have angelic presence in our life to know what God's Word is. Because God has now given us His Word. And his word is written in a way that's tangible. It is a way in which we can respond to it and we can now begin to format our lives and live according to his word. So the very things that were uh, issued a decree to Mary in her response, here I am, Lord, I'm your servant. Send me, let it be according to your word is the very thing that we can say this Christmas. Here I am, Lord, send me and let it be according to your word. You say, Lord, I wanna be an ambassador. God, I want to keep my eyes fixed on the prize. As I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, we can be um, God's soldiers that aren't entangled in civilian pursuits. We can be his athletes who don't cheat along the way. But we run our race and we stay in our lane and we keep our eyes fixed on the end goal. We can be his athletes. Hey, we can be his farmers that are cultivating seed, allowing God to to fall fresh on us in fertile places and to see a great harvest of righteousness produced. We can be that. But the reality is, is we have to say, here I am, Lord, send me and let it be according to your word. Not my plans, not my dreams, not my hopes, not my aspirations, not the things that um, I kind of do in my own life while saying I value your word valuing God's word and beholding him means that we're not dismissive of the very things he calls us to do. Which is why I think that you have an amazing thing at Pentecost. So if you remember uh, Jesus, um, he, um, he doesn't just come and as a baby, um, although what an incredible way he shows up. Uh, Tim Keller says that God approaches us in the form of a wiggly baby and gets close to us. Wow, isn't that awesome? The God of heaven and earth, the one who's all-consuming fire, he gets close to us because everybody loves a baby. <laughs> and he goes, "Here I am." And then he grows up and he lived a perfect life. He dies a sinless death in iniquity. He is led like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, and he dies. And then on the third day, he's resurrected. He lives 40 days on earth, appears to 500 plus witnesses at the New Testament accounts, and then he's resurrected into glory. And upon his resurrection, Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, and I'm going to give you my power and it's going to fall on you as my witnesses. And you're going to go with power as my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1.8. And he goes, and you're going to go and you're going to be my ambassador. So he goes, hey, don't get caught up in civilian affairs. Don't cheat in the race. Let it be according to God's word and be his servant. That's what he tells you got guys like Peter that begin to preach after the Holy Spirit falls upon them at Pentecost, which is an incredible thing. Peter preaches in chapter three. You see that Peter uh, and John they actually go to the synagogue. They hire this lame beggar. Um, they or they heal him, not hire him. They heal him. Um, after they heal him, there's a, a, an incredible response, as there would be any time that there's a healing that takes place, uh, particularly when Jesus isn't even present. Um, in, in terms of a tangible form. And so here it is, there's this healing. A lot of people are beginning to have clamor and conversation about it right there around the synagogue. And then, and then Peter begins to teach and preach. And he goes, hey, why is it that you're standing amazed? And why is it all that you are chatting about all this? Because he goes, do you not realize the power has nothing to do with me and John? It has everything to do with the Christ and whom you crucified. And he begins to unpack that for them. Like, hey, you are the ones who you missed what was written according to the word. You dismissed it. Yeah, the prophets talked about it. Isaiah said, behold. Jeremiah said, behold. John the Baptist said, behold. And every one of you who are scholars in the word dismissed it. And he goes, so let me tell you something. And then look what he says in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. He says, and now, brothers, I know that as you crucified the Lord, he goes, I know you acted in ignorance, And did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He goes, God has told us about it. Like he goes, he told us, like pay attention, behold. In essence, he's saying, he told us that everything that would happen would be fulfilled. And it has thus been fulfilled. He told us by the prophet Isaiah that he would come as as an infant, that he would be born of a virgin, that it would happen in the city of David, that he would be the king of David, that he would have an eternal kingdom that never end, that he would come in a lowly place, that you would not look to him of, of any comely appearance. Isaiah said that in Isaiah 53. We knew that he would be and stricken by God, that because of the iniquity of men, he would, would be placed on him. It happened. He's here. We know that he was going to establish a new covenant, a covenant by blood, that he was going to die and be crucified on the third day. We, we've been told he was going to be resurrected. He did. We know that that it's easy to miss because what we thought was going to come of a Messiah is different. But he came in humility. He came in the form of a man. He humbled himself, became nothing. He even, in a sense, gave up the heavenly so that he could come and dwell among us in human form. But here it is, the Christ you crucified. And I get it that you acted in ignorance. And though you were foolish in the way that you dealt with him, listen, you can do something about it. And so behold... And here's what he's saying. He goes, behold always begins with your belief. Behold begins with your belief. And the reason why is because you cannot believe in something that you don't know. You cannot behold someone that you don't have a relationship with. In the sense that you would really stand amazed and in awe and in reverence, you would get to know them. And that's the challenge, I think, in our culture. See, friends, the reason that we struggle right now in our culture, primarily around Christmas and even in the year 2020, is because there's so many of us who say something with our lips, but we don't behold God in our lives. Our belief in him is not a deep-seated belief. What I mean by that is this. We do believe that there's a God. A lot of us, even in this room, would say, I don't believe for a moment that the Big Bang um, established everything we see and know. We would all, most of us, would agree that there's an intelligent designer. Most of us would see that as um, the Earth's axis takes place, the tilt, um, the atmosphere, all the things that are intricately designed, we would say, those didn't happen by chance. And for a lot of us, we would say, okay, I believe in a God, but the question is, is, have you beheld his presence in your life? Because it's one thing to say, I know there's a God. It's a whole nother one to put your belief in him in such a way that it changes you. And I think that's the challenge that we have in the local church, is there's a lot of us that we would say, oh, I believe in him. Listen, I want you to realize something. I've got three children under 10, and every one of them believe in him. Every one of them would acknowledge him with their lips, but they've yet to come to the place where they're ready to acknowledge them with their lives. The challenge is most of us were taught how to pray a prayer when we were really early and to confess and believe in a God that we really didn't know. And we wonder why our lives are confused because we've never submitted to his word. See, here's what I want to realize is that believing in God, the believing in God in the way that you and I have been taught to believe in God is largely a challenge. And the reason why is because we teach people to believe in God so they don't spend eternal torment in a place called hell, which my kids think is a cuss word. It's like, oh but what I want you to realize is that a belief in a belief in him goes it goes deeper than that. A, a belief in him is not it's not merely a prayer that you pray and something you do and walk away from. A belief in him is not dangling the carrot over the kid or your kids and saying, Hey, of course you believe in him. You want to go to heaven, don't you? See, the challenge with that thinking is that we never actually do what we're called to do, which is what Peter actually encourages the men who acted in ignorance to do. Look what he says in verse 19. He goes, hey, it's one thing to have a belief in him. It's another thing to do something about it. And in verse 19, this is what he says. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So he goes, when you behold God in your belief, he goes, it's followed by repentance. A a beholding belief is always followed by repentance, which literally means to turn back. It's a military term uh, term that says you're you're filing in rank, and at some point, your commanding officer says, we're gonna turn back, and we go a different direction. And here's the challenge with us in our culture. We want the Bible back in school. We want the 10 commandments in our courthouse. We want all of these different things that we would say they're, are, they're lost and that they were removed. And, we want, and a lot of times, if we're honest with ourselves, we want to throw back to the 70s, which means all of our traditional churches are full. We have big choirs. We have Easter cantatas. And we want all those things. But the challenge with that is that we had little life change. The problem with our culture has nothing to do with our subset of beliefs. It has to do that our actions never follow and line up with our beliefs. The, the challenge with our culture is is that we rarely do what we would agree to do. We are merely "Here's the word." James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, we're merely "Here's the word," and so we deceive ourselves. We do not do what it says. And the problem with that is this, is that we have millions of churchgoers gathered all across the country today that they have the faith of demons. James 2.19 says, hey, what differentiates your faith, your belief, your subset of values from the demons? The only difference is, is they shudder. They run, they flee. The difference you is you think you stand and you behold the presence of God, but you've never repented. You've never turned. You were a traditional self-righteous guy. You're a traditional self-righteous girl. And you've never done anything different. To behold the presence of God is not just to believe in him. It's a deep-seated belief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But then it's to turn and it's to trust. And to trust him means God I have missed it. What would you help me to turn? Would you help me to trust you? The best way I could put it is the way my friend Todd Wagner puts it. And it's simply this. If you were to follow the breadcrumbs of your faith, where would it take you? Like if you were to look back over the trail of your life from the time that you said, oh, I trust or I believed in God, the question is, has anything changed about your life? I'm not talking about the time that you were baptized because oftentimes that's the conversation. Hey, have you been baptized before? Listen, it doesn't matter if you were water baptized if you weren't baptized in the blood of Jesus Christ. See, the reality is a life change happens when we behold a a solid belief in who he is, which the scriptures clearly tell us, but even the Jews, the self-righteous ones, even they missed it. But from there, it's not just a belief in him, but it's to acknowledge that to behold him means to repent. It's to turn. And what are we turning from? We're turning from our sin. See, all of us in here would probably acknowledge that we're sinners. All of us would probably realize that the challenge that we have with our sin is that we think that we can overcome our sin by doing something righteous. We oftentimes think that I can overcome my sin if I start serving. Or if I become a member, if I get baptized, or if I go to church, or if I stop singing, or I stop drinking, or I stop doing other substances, hey, I can probably become a better man if I just go to regeneration. I mean, after all, who doesn't want recovery? But the reality is is that everything about regeneration is pointing people to the very thing that our Bible does, and that is simply to admit that I'm, I'm I'm a sinner, and that I need to believe in Him, the Son of God, and put my trust in Him. And that means... That I move from a faith of demons to a faith of beholding God where I turn from my sin and I walk in a new life with Christ. That's beholding. And as we behold the presence of God in our lives, we realize that our words and our actions should begin to have legs that look the same. We walk it out in the same manner. And you might ask the question, well, but why do I want to behold God's glory? Like, why do I want to trust him? Why do I want that? And, 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 and it's not... What's crazy is, is Peter preaches this and he doesn't say, hey, behold God's glory so that you have heaven. He never says that. He doesn't say, hey, behold God's presence so that you're free from the fire of hell. He never says that. Look what he says. Encouraging these guys who've missed it to repent, he goes, turn back so that your sins may be blotted out by the blood of Christ, is what he means. And then look what he says in verse 20 and following, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed to you for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the restoring of all things about which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Amen. What he says is this, believing in God, he moves to repentance. And repentance, when you follow after him, you turn and you do an about face and you run towards God, which means you flee from the enemy. He gives you find refreshing Beholding God always brings about restoration. Friends, beholding God is where restoration begins. Amen. And if you look back of your life, you go, man, I don't know that I've ever been restored in a right relationship with God. It's because you've beheld the wrong thing. You might've put your belief in the wrong thing. And so the question is, is what are you beholding? Listen, you know what Mary beheld? Her son. And not because she was a godly mother, but because she knew that he was a God made Man, son of God. He was man and God, 100% man, 100% God in the flesh. He became what we could not. And she beheld his glory. Let it be according to your word, and I will be your servant. And she was transformed. And she, she was made to be an ambassador for the cause of Christ. A godly mother for the God of heaven and earth. And she beheld his glory. And friends, we would do well to behold his glory. And the reason why is because Jesus' birth happened for this one reason, so that you could have rebirth. Jesus' birth happened for one reason, and that is so that you could have rebirth. Rebirth that you could be born again, that you could be transformed, that you could put your belief and your trust in Jesus Christ and you could be changed, which is why Jesus begins his entire ministry in a life-changing way. Y'all know how Jesus started his ministry? Jesus started his ministry at a wedding. John chapter 2. The apostle, whom uh, was beloved by Jesus, he records it for us. And in John chapter two, um, John tells us that there was the first miracle that happened was at Cana in Galilee. And so this is what it says. Y'all pay attention to it because it's really really cool. It says, on the third day, uh, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." So what's happening is they're at this shindig, this party. Let's just say it's Christmas and there's a wedding um, and there's a ton of stuff going on and, and there's the festivities and there's the lights and there's the songs and there's the music and there's the dance and there's the celebration. And in the middle of the celebration, your goodies run out. In particular, the choice wine. It's out. And I don't know about you, but that would be like the DJ packing up all his stuff in the middle of the party and going home. Like, where's the music? Where's the festivities? Where, where's the party? And that's basically what happens. The party stops. The, the wine is out. The, 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 the good drink is gone, the celebration, the drink and be merry is out the window. And the person that sees that they could potentially do something about it is Mary, the very one who pondered in her heart who God is goes to her son and look what she says. And Jesus uh, says, uh, or she says to Jesus, "Hey, they have no wine." And look at his response. He says, "Woman." What does that have to do with us? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. So what she does is she goes, hey, we got a problem at the wedding and Jesus, you can fix it. And he goes, what? Why, why me? Now look, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And if you can wrap your head around this in the flesh, he is the son of his mother. And so he respects her. But what's crazy is in this moment, something is about to It's about to twist right here. And Jesus is about to enter into his ministry. And so he says, woman, what does this have to do with us? And in that moment, he doesn't say, hey, mom, hey, what does this have to do with you and me? He goes, woman, not a term of disrespect, but a term of endearment in that culture. He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? And what he does there, though, is an incredible thing. He says, not mother. A woman, why? Because prior to this moment, he has submitted to her authority as his mother. But in this moment, she is about to start submitting to his authority as her master. And so here it is. He is the master. And as he inaugurates his ministry, his, his mom seems to get one last incredible statement in, which I think in the flesh is fantastic. And, and this is what he's, Jesus says to her, hey, what does it have to do with us? And then look what his mother does. She didn't seem to respond to him. At least it's not recorded. The mother does what every strong woman would do that struggles with control. <laughs> Which makes us know that Mary was in her flesh. She had flesh, right? Um, she looks at the servants and she says, hey, just do whatever he tells you to do. And seems to walk off. <laughs> now, why is that amazing? Why is it amazing? It's because she knows her son, one, is a perfect obedience, But even more than that, she also seems to be clued in that the the inauguration of his ministry is about to transpire. And instead of having it out with him or trying to convince him, she just looks at the servants and goes, Hey, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And she goes back to the party. And it's an incredible picture, like right there, of of all that's transpiring in this moment. And her belief in her master. And then look what happens. Now there were six stone water pots set for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And then he said, hey, draw some out, and now take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had now become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water did know, the head waiter called at the bridegroom and said to him, hey, every man serves the good wine first, master, but, but hey... When the people have drunk freely, then they serve you the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. What he says is, he goes, everybody does it different. They all put out the choice wine first. They make a name for themselves. Everybody drinks it. And then once they are getting a little bit tipsy, they bring out the cheaper stuff, the Mad Dog 42, (laughs) and they put it out, and they let them drink it up. But he goes, not you. He goes, you started with some good stuff, but it just keeps getting better. And nobody's ever done that before. I don't know about you, but the bridegroom's astounded. He's, he's taking credit for something he didn't even do, probably. I mean, he's like, wow, that's, that's incredible. I mean, and the party continues to go on. And look at verse 11. And it says, The beginning of his sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, the reason I write this is because I want you to understand something that just transpired here. Not only was this the first miracle, and not only does this, I think, um, do multiple different things on multiple different factors. Number one is right there, I think Jesus inaugurates his, his ministry around marriage because of the sanctity of marriage. I really believe that. I wholeheartedly believe that he was purposeful in even solidifying what marriage is, and that's between a man and a woman, meant to last a lifetime. That's God's grand design. I think he inaugurates that in that way. But more than that, look what he does. He takes water and he turns it into wine. I don't know about you, but that's pretty spectacular. And the reason why it's spectacular is because um, I've never seen anybody do that. Now, I'm not talking about what you moms do, which is take some Kool-Aid, throw it in water and stir it up and go, hey, this is Kool-Aid. Look, that is an adding of a substance to a substance. But what we saw here was an act of what we would call recreation. God takes something that was created as water, and then he recreates it into something entirely different, which is now wine. It's a divine act. So think about it this way. Jesus, Colossians 1, spoke everything we know, see and know into existence, and he did so. When he initially created water, he did it by his voice, and he goes, let it be. And so when he created the expanse of the sky, when he created the universe, when he set everything into motion, he did it with a word and he let it be. And it was a it was divine act of creation. But the reality is, is that he also can recreate. And so what he does is he takes the very first creation, water, and now he turns it into what? Wine. And the reason I tell you this is because it's a divine act. It's a supernatural act of God fulfilling his purpose. And what he does is also incredible. He takes what was meant for ceremonial washings, and he goes, hey, let me do something amazing with that because he's going to show us what truly ceremonial washing is. He fills it all the way so there's no room for excuses. There's no manipulation. He goes, fill it all the way up to the top. There's no room for hair. And then he turns it into wine. And here's why. You ready? You ready? Because Jesus' ministry is always about recreation. And listen, don't miss it. It's not about physical transformation as much as it is spiritual transformation. It is an incredible thing for God to heal the blind. But listen, if God heals the blind and never sets a free, a man free spiritually, for them to see what they've never been able to see, listen, he would not be a good God. See, we get caught up in the divine miracles, right? We get caught up in, hey, can you believe this and can you believe that? Listen, don't miss what God has done here. At this wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus recreated water into wine. And he goes, and this is where the good stuff comes from. Listen, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And the most good and perfect gift that you could have is the presence of God in your broken life. You and I are broken wineskins and he desires to make them new. We are merely pots that are broken and shattered and tattered and he goes, but I can put them back together in which you can be filled with new wine too. And I think that's what Paul means in when he writes to the church of Corinth in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold! The news come. The old has passed away. And behold, pay attention. Don't miss. The new has come. Friends, our churches are dying all around us because no new life has come. And it's not because Jesus isn't offering new life. It's because our churches are searching after the wrong things. And friends, I don't know about you, but some of us have been a part of those churches all our life. And we wonder why our beliefs are shallow, why our beliefs haven't changed us, and why it is that at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, we still haven't grabbed a hold of the truth that would change us like it did Mary. Behold, let it be according to your word, for I'm your servant. Friends, that's what life's about. And if you have a Christmas like that, you will never have a marginal Christmas like you've had the last few years again. Let me say it one more time. If you behold the glory of God, with belief and repentance in a way that changed your life, where you were restored, you'll never have a marginal Christmas like you've had again in your life. And so friends, let's make sure that we behold the creator and the recreator, the one who's taken hearts that are sinful and wretched, and may we ask him to make them new. Friends, that's what the church is all about. and it's what we should be about. Friends, if we're about anything less than that, building programs, if we're about anything um, like ministries uh, or, or, or the color of church pews or the paint or the wall uh, or anything else, like, man, we have beho- we're beholding the wrong thing. I don't know. You ever been a part of a church that's beholding the wrong thing? Can I just confess that as a leader, even in this church, I can behold the wrong things? You know, that's why I need community. That's why I need people like you to remind me of what it is that I should Behold. Because I can get caught up in the wrong things really quick. I am very, very, very prone to leave the God I love. But may we continually set our hearts in motion to say, Lord, I behold you. Let it be according to your word, the truth found in scriptures. And may I be your servant. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we find according to your word. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and his miracle in Galilee at Cana. Lord, I thank you that he takes something uh, that is water and he recreates it into something completely different to wine. And I thank you, Lord, that wine is a representation of what his people are to be. A land flowing with milk and honey, um, satisfied with good and luscious grapes that turn into choice wine. Lord, that's what it's like to have a relationship with you. You are the God of our Bible, the God of restoration. How could any of us as believers in Christ walk about in our life not proclaiming the work of God? How could we not exude joy and abundance by knowing you? Not the joy and the abundance that is possessed in the things we own, but the The truth that we have in scripture, Lord, we can be weak and you be strong on our behalf. We can be feeble and and unwise. You can be wise on our behalf. Lord, we know that it's not about us, but it's about your power filling us. And so Lord, would you fill us with your power? Would you help us to behold your presence in our lives so that your power and your peace are manifested in everything that we do? Lord, we need your help because our culture is encouraging us to do things that are contrary to your word. And Lord, we just need to be reminded daily what it looks like to set our eyes on things above. And so God, would you help us? And it is by the help of our God that we will behold you, that we will let our lives be lived according to your word, and we will say, here I am, Lord, send me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.